This is our league, and this is your league. From the 55-yard line on CFL America Radio and the Sports History Network. choices about our life. I was focused on football so that I would have a chance to go to school and take advantage of any opportunity given to me. I could have never looked down the line and say I was going to go undefeated. What I did control is one play at a time. You take a play, you read it, deal with the consequences after the fact. My dad has always been distant in his demeanor. He's quiet, reserved. He holds things back. I'm introverted in a sense with my kids. I don't tell them a lot of things that have gone on in my past. Things that most people like to talk about, I kind of let it go. He's passionate, caring, and protective. He loves his family. When it came to sports, it was the one place we could connect. My dad had been this champion black quarterback at a time when it wasn't common. I started to have questions about what it looked like to be black in America in 1960. And that's when the project really took root in my belly. That's the Lorraine age. Is there anything that you recommend I ask him or things that might be missing right now? Well, your father's story was... By writing this book, I would have to find the pieces that were missing.
have always had this feeling that if you write a book, that lasts somewhere forever on the shelves of history. I felt maybe if I didn't do it, that no one would, and that it would be forgotten. Before I started writing, I knew that my dad grew up in Portsmouth. I knew that he had lived in the projects. The North End, it's not like your traditional ghetto. I had all my best friends there. How you doing, man? It was kind of community driven. It allowed all of us to grow up in an area where we were protected. The projects here have definitely changed. There was three, one, two, three. I'm trying to figure out the houses I lived in. I lived in one of those. <laughs> we lived in that unit once, the H, and my grandmother lived in this one. And there was no showers, just a bathtub, no phone. We used to have the bushes here, though. <laughs> and the funny thing about these bushes, if I was not behaving myself, I had to go out and tear off a, a switch for her and it better not break. <laughs> you can switch once or twice, you know, <laughs> not to go there. You ain't doing nothing wrong. You are Miss Ealy, right? Yep. Double check it, that you ain't something wrong now. No, you got it, you got it right. You are now looking at the greatest quarterback to ever throw a pass. Still holds a record for undefeated streaks. John Elway never did that. This is one of the most important grounds ever existed. The community leaders in our town would coach these younger players. We competed very hard in our community with each other. Sport became our vehicle and our way out. We would go to the park and we would play football, then we'd go play baseball, then we'd go play basketball all in one day. I could do a lot of running when I was playing the game because I kind of started off like a running back. You watch high school seniors and you drove yourself to be as good as they were. My father grew up with just his mother. His biological father just sort of walked out and said, no thanks. He was an alcoholic. I mean, he, you know, he drank, you know, a fair bit. My mom, Early Neely, took on the role of both mother and father. And that's why a lot of the discipline, a lot of love came through her. She dropped out of school in grade eight and started cleaning hospitals. And I remember hearing that and thinking, what? I didn't know that. Growing up here in this community, we pulled for one another. It was a family thing. Having Chuck here tonight is special because it proves that when you set your mind to something, it can be done. Only thing it takes us is to do the things that we are supposed to do. Hey, 
I remember at age 13 trying to play with Larry and Al and them because they were always older than me. When you're the youngest, you're going to get the worst position. You know, you know, it's going to be a case. You're going to be the center. You're going to start off down there at the bottom somewhere. <laughs> but that taught me a lesson, too. I took that and the next year got better and better because I was playing with the older guys and I was learning from them while I was on the field. In black history, families have been separated generation after generation. Mothers gave birth to children. Children were sent to one plantation. Fathers were separated from their wives. But alongside that brokenness, there's also this heart of faith. My mother taught me about spirituality, and that was always an intricate part of my life. You learn those values and the consistency of where your belief system lies. When my dad passed away, the funeral service was right in this church. I remember asking you to come to the funeral, and mm -hmm. you said no. Well, I said no because really not knowing him, there was no need for you to be a part of that transaction. You can say it's good to forgive. Good to forgive, better to forget. If there's one thing that my dad really doesn't want to talk about, it's his father. That's been the biggest wound. Charles Ely Sr., Tech 5, U.S. Army, World War II, January 6, 1919. My birthday is January 6, 1950. He knew that on the day he celebrated, the day he was born, his father was celebrating the same thing, even when he wasn't there. My dad was my dad by birthright. I remember I was in court for custody, which obviously wasn't going to go anywhere but my mother. The judge brought me up on the stand. My dad wasn't there yet, but he was coming in and he saw me on the step and he turned around and left. I called him Uncle George because he was not my father. He too was a war veteran and most of the fathers that came back either were divorced, separated, some of them had been obviously in the military and some of those things probably had some of the impact on them and what they drank and how they acted and things in the community. God rest your souls. When I look at the statistics of my father's life, an alcoholic father, a stepfather who's abusive, a mother who is not educated, I would think that his circumstances were hopeless. The train tracks divide the black and white neighborhood in Portsmouth. When my father was growing up, it was segregated. All the black people lived on one side of the tracks, white people lived on the other. This is where my father changed his life without even knowing it. 
when I first started playing quarterback, I didn't have a lot of chance to throw the ball. But I said, I want to get better at this. So how do I do this? Nobody else is here to practice. But I happened to be walking by the train one day. And the train, when it comes to town, it comes in slowly. As the train barreled past him, he would throw stones. In each of the trades was a Norfolk and Western Railroad N and W. And then I would try to hit the N or I would try to hit the W, whichever was my target. I had to anticipate where that point of, of release was going to be so that I could hit that target. The stones had a fairly good weight to them, so that if I dropped back and I threw it higher on the train, the pass was going deeper. If I threw it lower, then the pass was going to be shorter. I don't know what caused me to do it, but <laughs> just a kid wanting to try to figure out something, and that was the only way I could do it. You think of all the things that we have accessible to us now technology to advance our skills and to think that my father changed the trajectory of his life with stones is just amazing. When you talk about destiny, when I went on to Notre Dame High School, it sort of allowed me to get into two different worlds that I would have never gotten into. When I went up the hill to Notre Dame, there was like five black students in a school about 400. So this was a private school? Yep. So how were you able to afford to go somewhere mm -hmm. like this? I didn't really afford it. You either provided the income, which we didn't have, or I made myself available to work it off. So I would come here in the summers and buff the floors and earn the right to be able to go to school here. Hmm. A little bit different. It's good to see the Titans are still doing this thing. Keep up the good work. We would come here and Coach Miller would have us kneel and pray. And we'd get prepared to mentally get ready for the game. We'd be dressed in our equipment. The only thing we didn't have on is our cleats, and we would go in stocking feet down the hallway quietly. And the only thing you can hear is the swishing of our feet. When I started playing high school football, the social issue at the time carried this stigma about blacks and whites, and there was no bones about it men who were running the system weren't necessarily in favor of a black quarterback. Coach Miller, who was my high school coach, he wanted to win. He didn't care. School was tough here. We had the nuns and Father Grimes, who was a principal here, was no-nonsense principal. I wasn't what you would call 
Einstein student, but I worked hard to get my grades. Why was education so important to you? My mother stressed the importance of education because she didn't have one. That was very important for her to see that I got an education that she was unable to get herself. Very seldom did I miss any class because she was making sure I was going. There was one pool in Portsmouth, Ohio, and that pool did not allow blacks to use it. It didn't have a sign that said whites only, it had a sign that said for card-holding members only. It's called Dreamland. The story of Eugene McKinley started to unravel about what happened when he was in high school. In August of 1962, there was this huge heat wave. The sun is just beating down and none of the black kids could swim in the pool. There was a quarry on the other side of the riverbank. Eugene was my older cousin. He and a couple of his friends went to the quarry to swim. And Eugene wasn't a swimmer. Eugene McKinley was pulled under by a current. And he drowned and, and died. the service here at this church. It affected the whole city. My father and other kids from the North End went down to this pool. And we did a sit-in. Some of the kids climbed over the fence and jumped in the pool to protest the fact that they weren't allowed to swim there. Finally, the paddy wagons came and threw us in the back. The police pulled up and my father was arrested. It pulled a community together to take a stand based off of what had taken place, which was not fundamentally right. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. When Martin Luther King was killed, my school, Notre Dame, marched with a cross through the black community in the appreciation and understanding of what me and the community were feeling. So there's things that you do that sometimes uh, set you apart. We went to this hill, and my dad just said, climb up. And at the top of the hill, we could see Municipal Stadium. And on the other side of the hill, we could see the Scioto River, one of the paths on the Underground Railroad. We were looking down on this greenery you could see Kentucky on the other side of the river. This is where slaves traveled and hid and ran for their lives. This is it. This is it. These stands would sometimes be full, and that stands would be full. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, this brings back memories. Kentucky, 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 Kentucky. 
looking down on that stadium, realizing how my father had won all those games as a quarterback. And as a result, he had been able to make that same journey to a place where he could have freedom and opportunity. At that time, the state championship teams were selected by the media, and we were fortunate to be voted for the state championship of Ohio. Chuck Stobart, who was one of the coaches, wanted me very badly to go to Miami, Ohio, which was a school I wanted to go to. He wanted me to come as a third quarterback and a defensive back. And I kind of went, no. Two universities expressed an interest in him. But both of the schools are watery at best on my father's opportunities to play quarterback. I live in the projects, have no money, looking for a scholarship. They're going to give me one, but you have to do this. And I say, that's not what I want. And I think, are you crazy? Take the scholarship, get on the field, prove you can play quarterback. My father just said no. If he hadn't got into school on a football scholarship, the second choice was the military. There was a very good chance that he would have gone to serve in Vietnam. The stakes were huge. He needed to get a scholarship. I didn't have any offers for scholarship. Father Grimes called Coach Walker. One of the assistant coaches went to Toledo to come and see us. But he got down there for football season. We're in the basketball season. This is actually the basket that it happened at. About six seconds left to go in the game. I dribbled down real quick over to the corner. Just shot a jump shot and, and the buzzer went. So I scored 30 points that game or something crazy. Father Grimes came and got me and says, you know, somebody want to speak to you from University of Toledo. And we go, where? They told me you could play quarterback or give you a full scholarship. And I signed it right there. Nothing else mattered. It was a bigger city, 400,000. I worked during the summer up there, practice, keep myself in shape and get ready for the season. Everybody came from their various schools, all over the state, from New York, from Cleveland, from Detroit. In the dormitory, we had the basketball players on one floor, baseball players, football players. We ended up going by each other's rooms and we started learning little things about each other. I was the only one that had a white roommate. It was a great thing rooming with Gary for that first year as a freshman. It was very easy for me because I came from a school where all the kids were white except for three black kids. So I guess we became more noticeable because nobody else was like that. The social reality begins to sit in. It was a time of the big afros and the black power movement. And I remember going down the door street, which was a part of the black community and the black Panthers were walking down with their guns on the street. And I'm going, whoa. There was no friction between us. He was a well-kept person. It didn't make any difference what the color of your skin was. It did you get the job done. We had a dining room where only the football players and baseball players ate. And I would sit down with all the black guys one day, and then I would sit down with some white guys at the table the next day, and I never made it an issue. And by the time we were all seniors, I mean, we became really, really like brothers.
the first thing about Chuck was he was the only one that had a car. <laughs> <laughs> he had a Ford 1964 Ford Fairlane or something like that. The galaxy, yeah. <laughs> and you hit the brakes, it pulled to the... <laughs> Nice guy, just like he is now, he'd let you borrow it. <laughs> Our role was to get the varsity ready for their schedule. So we were kind of uh, dummies, really. We'd run the ball over, get killed five or six times, and see if you survive. It was pretty grueling. Going through that boot camp probably had a lot to do with how we galvanized as a team. It was probably that early session of practice that they saw some athleticism in me. My sophomore year, we have a spring ball. That's where we compete who will be starting the following year. Steve Jones is there at Toledo. He was the starting quarterback. Steve didn't do as well. During the game, they ended up putting me in and I kind of took over. We would beat the Bowling Green, which is our big rivalry, 17 to nothing at halftime. And they came back. They scored like four straight times with 49 seconds left in the game. Chuck drove the length of the field, and we kicked the field goal to win that game with no time left. Kept that streak alive. I babysat for the team doctor. They always had these books in their home. They were called dope books, which is the dope on all the players on the team. Being in need of a boyfriend at the time, I went through the book and picked out Chuck because he was, you know, fairly good looking. And then I arranged for their son to introduce us. We went to a basketball game. I told this guy in my English class, I'm going with Chuck Ely. No, you're not. Yes, I am. <laughs> He was a playmaker. If the called play broke down, he was very nimble and creative. He would make a play out of a broken play. He was somebody that just refused to lose. Even though we were behind, we had some tough times, we knew we would pull it out at the end, and we did. The shooting at Kent State took place. Students were demonstrating and they were killed. People just started boycotting all together, stopped going to class. The coaches were saying, use your head, use good common sense. We weren't going to step too far out and do something to harm the team. We felt rebellion. You're caught between sports and what happens in society. We had a candlelight visual, and a lot of us participated in that. It's all part of doing what you believe to be the right thing. Winning kind of heals all wounds. Very quickly, we kind of molded together, focusing on the sport. 1970, Toledo versus Miami. This was a game that we had to win in order to win our second championship. We came out flat. Miami punts to us, and it's like three minutes left in the game. 
Miami ends up recovering the ball and going in to score. Now we're behind 13 to seven, two minutes left in the game. We had some really tight games, really, really tight games that we could have lost. Time was not an issue, score was not an issue. It was, what do we need to do now? You know there's a crowd, you know people are screaming, but all I remember is one play at a time. You take care of the moment that you're in. I'll tell you what they called Chuck at that time. They called him the wizard of oohs and ahs because he drove us the length of the field and ran in for the touchdown to win it with virtually no time left. With my father, it's almost like a supernatural ability to focus and move forward. My dad's view is always, I can do this, I can overcome it. The hard thing for us is to really figure out how to do that in our own lives when it maybe doesn't come as naturally. His name is Bryant, B-R-Y-A-N-T. He was the product of Uncle George and my mother. He had contracted cancer. I would go through crisis moments with him and then he would get better. And then he would go back to another crisis. You would never know that he had a younger brother that was dying of cancer. He was just Chuck, and he'd take off when he had a chance to go home, and we never knew anything. I got there in time to see him going in and out. I'm sitting there watching this, and I called the nurse, and uh, he passed away right there in front of me. You know, death and passing on is something that is difficult. I didn't want a lot of people to know. What was remarkable through that whole process is Chuck never changed uh, in terms of what he was doing for the team. Something so personal and so devastating as, as losing a, a sibling like that, I don't think I could have done it. It never became an issue focusing with my teammates and what I needed to do. Sometimes I look at myself and say, well, you know, who are you? What do you think is your most significant memory of this stadium? Before we went to the next Tangerine Bowl, I was sitting there with Steve Banks, and I said to him, you know, we've got something here to be really proud about. We bonded so well together, and now we're all at this end point. It kind of hit me, this team will never be the same. The varsity had lost the last game before we started the year before, and the team after us lost the first game. So the streak was our class. The group of men that we now have become created this synergy between all of us that will be lasting. We loved each other. I mean, we just really loved each other. I was number eight in the Heisman Trophy balloting that year. At the end of his career at the University of Toledo, my father had the best record in the NCAA, 35 victories. Someday I'll have to take the pictures down. Why would they have to take it down? Because here comes Chester Taylor, Lance Moore. I don't think you guys are going anywhere. 
Every year, Playboy magazine has a college football article that they put out. They said that University of Toledo will have more players drafted in the NFL this year than any other college. Didn't happen that way. I got a call from Denver and I got a call from Kansas City. Asked me to run a 40, asked me to do things defensive backs and receivers do. And through all the rounds, my father wasn't drafted. What took place there just didn't make sense to us. There was a guy who had proven himself over and over again at the high school level, the collegiate level. All he had to do was watch the film and, you know, what's the question here? I understood that the NFL didn't have black quarterbacks at the time. In 1972, Joe Gilliam was drafted as a black quarterback. Joe was drafted very late, but Joe was closer to a prototypical quarterback. He fit the profile better than Chuck. He got drafted by the Pittsburgh Steelers. He ended up winning the starting job from Terry Bradshaw. But the backlash in Pittsburgh at that time was such that they had to take Joe out of that position. I started to ask questions of my father. What really happened when you finished at the University of Toledo? He hired an agent, and the agent talked to him about what he should do in order to get drafted. It's likely that you won't be drafted as an NFL quarterback, so we'll want to consider playing defensive back or a wide receiver. I told the NFL by letter that I wanted to play quarterback. I sent the letter out and said, if you want to draft me as a quarterback, great. If you're not going to take me as a quarterback, I've got my scholarship, I've got my education. The only reason that he wasn't drafted was because of that letter. Not only the fact that he wanted to play quarterback, but the assertion that he would only play quarterback I think they saw him as a black man who wasn't willing to back down and accept what was given to him. That was a pivotal decision and one of those destiny-shaped moments that showed who my father was. on Hamilton's negotiation list. They said, we'd like you to come up and visit. And I said, okay, sure. Ralph Sazio was originally from the States, wanted me to come and play quarterback. Bernie Custis played here many years before as a black quarterback, and it was not an issue with the CFL. Going from Toledo to Hamilton, the cultural mix was different. There was a real diversity of people. For the most part, the game is pretty close to the same. Three downs versus four downs. That's the biggest difference. If you did not get more than two yards on that first down, you have to think pass to get the yardage. It was hard to call because you may have been accustomed to calling the first down uh, running play, and then you get stuck. You try to do something to scare them, but you know the percentages of getting eight yards on the run is not always going to happen. The playbook was very thick. It would have the blocking scheme with one number. It would have the patterns for the left side and pattern on the right. Everybody would know where to go, but they only dealt with their side. I had to know where everybody was going. 
Jerry Williams, who was a coach at that time, took the quarterback and designed things around their ability. He created things that gave me freedom to get outside versus just stay back here, throw the ball in the pocket, which wasn't my style. This is Stetson, 37-yard line. We had this road trip where we do BC Edmonton. Wally Gabler was the starting quarterback. When we went out for this swing, Wally didn't play very well. I got in the game and started picking up the team. We lost that game. We were behind and never caught up. Then I played against Edmonton. I played really well, but defensively, we gave up more points than we should have, so we still lost. I came back and started against Montreal. We lost, so we were now one and three. I remember going off the field with Andrew Moscow. Hamilton fans were upset, I guess, and then he says, keep your helmet on, son. I went in the dressing room a little upset. I said, I think we better win, guys. Then we went on this tear and won all the rest of our games in regular season. Playing in a smaller city has a big advantage because the teams tend to be a little closer. And when we got married, we moved into a townhouse next door to one of the other ballplayers and his wife. That was really helpful, partly too because she was a really good cook and I didn't really know how to cook. The great cup was the icing on the cake. The city was just crazy and it was a huge, huge achievement to be there. The Great Cup was just a festivity of a national sport. Everybody's right across the country coming to the Great Cup. It's fun time in Hamilton, and what a great ball game this one is expected to be. The Saskatchewan Rough Riders, led by that great veteran quarterback, Ronnie Lancaster, and the rookie from Toledo who guides the destiny of the Hamilton Ticats, Chuck Ely. I remember being very nervous before the game, but after the game started, I was totally relaxed and comfortable. Then Wesolowski is in there, number 27, replacing him, throws a block for Ely, who's loose at the 45. Chuck Ely's an awful man to contain, and we have to stop him. Ely in trouble, and he'll go down, back at the 50 yard. Defensive were playing well, but the offenses were playing well too. Oh, and Lancaster slips and falls, goes down here for Bobby Pierce, and he's got it. The Rough Riders will win today. They've got too much poise, and the other guy is a rookie. He hasn't looked like a rookie. Ely getting away from Baker and wide open is Tommy Joe We were moving up and down, up and down. Either Ron Lancaster would make a mistake, or I'd make a mistake. Down there, and it is intercepted. The score wasn't indicative of what was going on on the field. Somebody's got to break this loose. The last drive of the game, we got the ball down, maybe on a 20-yard line. Ely over the center, and it's good there to Tony Gabriel. I hadn't thrown a pass to Tony Gabriel all day. Watching the clock tick, Tony looks, I throw it to him quick. Then the next play, got him to the hole. I hit him like three times. Eight and a half yards to go. to the 26-yard line. That was Garney Henley. Made a great catch. 16 yards was the length of the game, and it was second and long yard. I remember coming off the field thinking, okay, Ian Sunder, you're a baby now. 
man, we've done what we can do. And I'm thinking, don't miss this. <laughs> it was a mixture of old and new. The old guys teaching the young guys with a coach who could blend those two together. Kick the field goal to beat the Saskatchewan Rough Riders 13 to 10. The winner of the Outstanding Player Award for 1972. Here are the keys to the Levant's car and your personal trophy. I remember winning the car. He called to ask me what color. And I told him, and he got black. That wasn't the color. So it's got to be the uh, top attraction, you know, being in the Great Cup and winning it and being a quarterback in my first year, it's got to be the top uh, award for me. Congratulations on an outstanding season. The Underground Railroad went through Toledo right into Canada. I see a great parallel with what happened to me and the choices I had to make to go from Portsmouth to Canada to get the freedom to be anything you want to be. I was the first African-American quarterback to win the Great Cup and it opened up the floodgates. The game fit Conrad. It fit Warren. It fit Tracy Ham the nature of this game up here. It's exciting for a quarterback that's mobile. They knew Canada would give them opportunity. I remember being at a Black History Month event with Damon Allen and my dad. Um, my dad said he was going to meet up with Damon to talk about opportunities after the CFL. And I thought, oh yeah, Damon's going to look to my dad for a model of what he wants to do going forward. I loved watching Damon Allen play. Watching him was like what it might have been like to watch my dad play. I said to myself, when I came to the CFL, I want to play five to seven years, and then I will stop, period. That was the target. It happened to be in my seventh year. When you start thinking about retirement, it's time to retire. <laughs> so it was time to retire. We loved what Canada had to offer in terms of raising our children here. We have great friends that we made through football, and we are very grateful to the CFL. After Chuck finished football, it wasn't like, should we go back to the States? We wanted to stay here. We're Americans by birth, we're Canadians by choice. A born leader. I don't know if I understood what that looked like until I researched my father's life. Subtitle, I think that was really clear. So many of us get crippled by all the things we've been through. His life really seems touched from the beginning in a way that was meant to be written about. When I was younger, I feel like I took a lot of things for granted. All the things that you struggled and forced yourself to move through, I just, I don't think I got it. 
everything came so easy for me, you know? In some ways, I feel guilty for not appreciating it more. When you see that the journey that you've gone through had an impact on a young person, when you see your kids raising their grandchildren in a way that's consistent with developing them into people that contribute to the world, that's when I go, oh, this is good. I don't need any more.